0: You can turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9 as we are looking at a text this morning that's very popular when it comes to uh, the prophecies of the coming Messiah for the remnant of Israel and, and all that that entails and, and exactly what this Messiah was bringing and what Christ brought with him. We're in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 this morning, and hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in. If not, that's fine. You can just kind of follow along or or take notes on your phone, but the answer will be on the, the screen behind me. But we kicked off our season of Advent last week with the theme of hope, the Advent theme of hope. We did so by looking at Isaiah 7. And in Isaiah 7, we see the prophecy concerning the divine conception and the virgin birth. And we see that hope is found in knowing that God is not some passive observer of history, but rather he acts decisively to bring about his purposes and is the designer of history. So he's the decisive designer who acts according to his purposes. And so this season affectionately and intentionally focuses. I want to continue to remind us of this throughout this season because we can get so caught up in uh, the different things and the, 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 the Christmas parties and the, the the different things that we do this time of year that we can lose focus in all the different symbols and the traditions and all of that. But this season focuses our attention both on the past and the future advent of Christ. And so last week we focused on the expectant hope which Christ has provided us. And today we shift our focus to the peace with which Christ rules and reigns. We shall see that Christmas shifts our citizenship from the kingdom of chaos To the eternal kingdom of peace ruled by the Prince of Peace. So we have a shifting of citizenship that's at the, the heart of what we see in this morning's text. For almost as long as man has been, there have been man made governments that have sought to bring about their own definitions of peace. Because peace always comes at a cost, they seek man made peace. A man-controlled governance. It's almost always unbalanced. Our peace comes at the sake of lack of peace for someone else. Well, as we look at Isaiah 9 and the subsequent verses from the Gospels, I want us to know this morning, I want us to know the peace of Christmas and live with convictions as citizens of His kingdom of peace. So I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 as our text. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, as we read these incredible, hope-filled, peace-giving verses that came some 740 years before you were to accomplish the very thing that you spoke of here through the prophet Isaiah. God, may these verses do just that. Fill us with expectant, confident hope, which then overflows in overwhelming peace and causes us to rejoice abundantly. Let us not get caught up in the humdrum traditions and, and different symbolism of this time of year, but let us clearly Keep our eyes focused on Christ. And may that bring us overwhelming peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church, so. Before we can truly appreciate what we read here in Isaiah, because we, we talked at length last week about biblical prophecy and using those those, uh, those those tools for interpreting biblical prophecy, making sure that we understand that there's a shadow and a type, then there's a reality and a, an initial uh, uh, fulfillment and a future fulfillment. So before we can truly appreciate what we read here in Isaiah 9, we must understand what the Lord pronounces in the chapter preceding it, in chapter 8. So what has happened between chapter 7 and chapter 9? No, nobody say 7, 8, 9, all right, because I already thought that one, and it's not not as clever as you think it is, all right? So in chapter 7, we have the distinct promise of hope. We looked at that at length last week. We have this distinct promise of hope. However, The Lord was providing hope for His people in the midst that there was coming judgment. And so the judgment is still coming. He wants His people to take hope, but He wants them to take hope in the midst of the reality of the coming judgment. And this is what we see outlined in chapter 8, that that judgment has come. The details of this are outlined for us in 2 Kings 15, if you want to kind of jot that off to the side. 2 Kings 15 is where you can read at, at even more detail about exactly what happens with this Assyrian invasion, where we see these conspiring enemies overtake the region of Galilee, which is the, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those uh, tribes of Israel. And the Lord puts it this way in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, we begin chapter 8 starting with uh, Isaiah's wife giving birth to a child who they call Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, if you want to look for a biblical name for your next child, maybe you'll consider that one. But, so Isaiah's, Isaiah's wife gives birth to uh, this child who they name, uh, I just read, which means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens, okay. And so they give birth to this child and, and uh, uh, they go to and she conceives and she bears this son and the boy uh, knows how to cry, my father. We see this in verse four. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so this, uh, this child that has come to the prophet Isaiah and his wife uh, is a sign in and of itself. And so we see this in verse 5, chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many the king of Assyria, and all his glory. So the Lord is saying that because they've rejected me, they've refused me, and he uses this, this pool that was outside of Jerusalem. So this is before, you know, you might be familiar with the pool of Salome that you read about in the New Testament. This is before that pool has been formed. And so this is kind of its predecessor and it's symbolizing the Lord's provision and faithfulness. And he said, they've refused my provision and faithfulness. And so now I'm bringing a great and mighty flood, a mighty river that is going to overtake you. And it's the king of Assyria. So the Lord is saying, this is my judgment coming upon my people for their rejection of me. Okay. And so it says it it will rise over all its channels, go over its banks. So this is a overwhelming flood coming from these armies of the Assyrians. Verse 8, And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, All you far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So we have this pronouncement there at the end. We have this coming judgment, but then there's this pronouncement of hope, that God is with us. Where do they get that hope from? What we read last week and and looked at at length in chapter 7. So there's this coming judgment on the people for their rejection of God. And so God reveals just what He's doing in the midst of this chaos and ruin. As as He has announced this, He now, in the proceeding verses, verses 11 through 22, He shows just what He's doing that he is preserving for himself in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of all this coming war and and suffering and torment, that he's preserving for himself a remnant. Those who know his word and live according to it, who are still within his people. He's preserving them. Those who will cling to his commands, follow his ways, look with expectant hope to his coming Messiah. That he is soon to tell about. We read this in verse 16 of chapter 8. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. This is his prophecy concerning, this is the Lord speaking concerning uh, his remnant, that he wants them to bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So this is Isaiah proclaiming just what this remnant is clinging to. They're clinging to God's word, clinging to God's ways, clinging to God's command. Verse 18, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah is pronouncing what the Lord has done in his own family and how this is a sign for what is to come. Verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. So this is the people. This is the Lord saying, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? So the indictment here is clear. That they have rejected God wholesale, the the people at large. But God is preserving for himself a remnant who still cling. And so he's saying, they're going to ask you to inquire of necromancers. They're going to ask you to the, the chirp and mutter. But should not the people inquire of their God? The next question you see there still in verse 19, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So we see that the people are completely at a loss. They completely rejected the Lord. And the Lord's bringing judgment upon them because of that. But the Lord is at work to preserve a remnant, to bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. So before we move on and get into today's text, I want us to see a few things regarding how the Lord is at work in this moment in Isaiah and through Isaiah. This makes it so clear that the Lord is both a refuge for those who trust in him, and the truth of his word. He is a refuge for those who trust in him and truth of his word, but he is also the flooding river who drowns those outside of the refuge. That's what Isaiah is making clear here. The Lord is bringing sweeping judgment, but he is also preserving for himself those who know his word, who keep his word. And he is at work here in the midst of this. That's why he's told his people to take Hope, be broken, you people, be shattered. But God is with us. So before we move on, I want to make that clear. The Lord is both a refuge for those who trust in him and the truth of his word, but he's also the flooding river who drowns those outside the refuge. So the context of our text this morning is one of confident hope and peace for this remnant. But before you can know just how sweet true peace is, you must experience the chaos of the flood. and That's what the Lord is doing here. He's saying, peace is coming. Hope is here because peace is coming. So cling to hope knowing that peace is coming. Now, we move into this morning's text, verse 1 of chapter 9. Because he continues in those uh, last few verses that there's all this contempt coming that they will look to the earth, behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness is what what Isaiah says. But, verse 1 of chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So there's a lot of stuff to unpack here because there's a lot of references to these different areas, references to these tribes and their regions, and uh, there's all there's a lot of stuff going on here. So we want to unpack some of this. So. Isaiah provides the remnant with a glorious perspective of confident hope in God's sovereignty. Isaiah expands our view of our troubles beyond the present to look at them in the scope of God's eternal purpose. So there's there's coming suffering, there's coming distress, but you can have hope because peace is guaranteed through God's word. And through God's promised one. And so, how does he do this? How does he do this here? Well, there's several key terms, as I said, and phrases here, that God uses to indicate that he is redefining the future of his people. And that's what he's at work doing here. That he's redefining the future of his people. So notice Isaiah's repeated use of the past tense here while discussing. Their current plight. This is something that's coming and is at the doorstep. And yet he's talking about it here in verse 1 as if it's done already. It's finished. He said, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Well, the anguish hasn't even come yet. But he's talking about it in the past tense. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun. Well, well wait a second. You just told me that the Assyrians are coming, and now you're saying they've already come, right? So how do we unpack this? So he uses this uh, repeated use of the past tense. They're currently in the midst of preparing to experience this great and awful awful turmoil caused by the coming Assyrian invasion. This gloom and anguish described there in verse 22 of chapter 8. So, what we see here is a careful use of a poetic idiom to communicate the overwhelming assurance of God's purposes. So, so pay attention here. I know, don't, I know you might have lost me at poetic idiom, okay? But stay with me. They are currently in the gloom and anguish of God's judgment. The storm is on the horizon, and it's coming. And God, because God has said it's coming. And God has told them why it's coming. However, Isaiah talks of what is to come as if it's already happened. And so in doing so, he casts their vision far into the future. Because he's saying, look, the storm is coming, but this is what is on the other side of it. This is what God is doing through this gloom, through this anguish, through this distress. What Isaiah wants the remnant, so those who cling to God's word, walk in his ways, and who will look forward in faith in the coming Messiah, what he wants them to realize is that their faith is anchored by a confident hope in God's faithfulness. The Lord provides us with such a sure abiding hope that we can walk, we can talk about his future victories as if they've already happened. This is the confidence of knowing Christ. This brings me to the first point on your outline this morning that the Lord's past actions establish confident hope in his eternal sovereignty. Now you might be saying to yourself, hope was last week's theme, but just give me a second and I promise it's going to all make sense. All right, so it's going to come together. So the confidence of faith is what provides us with present peace. The confidence of knowing what God is doing and that he is in control is what allows us to live at peace in the moment. The sovereignty of God is what provides the confident hope of lasting peace. So God has shown his active will time and time again throughout his word. How he is at work constantly, consistently, clearly bringing his will about that his purposes. Might be lived out. Therefore, we can have confidence in a hope filled, peaceful future because we know who holds the future. Because we see God acting here and now, because we know of His actions in the past, we can have full assurance that God has already acted in the future on behalf of His name. So it's as if Isaiah is saying, Take hope now. We have seen God's past action. We know that He is working in the midst of this. We know the gloom and anguish that is to come. Therefore, His victory is as good as done in the future. Church, if this was enough reason for hope and peace for the remnant of Isaiah's day, 740 years before Christ, how much more reason do we have for confident hope, peace, and assurance? and knowing and having faith in the resurrected Christ. As we shall see, this is the peace that Christmas provides. So different from last week's prophecy. So last week we are told of of a child uh, coming, and now in chapter 8 we're told of Isaiah's son being born. And so we have now the the shadow has been set for us there. It's already set. So now we're being told, kind of given uh, interpretation of that in light of what's happened. So here we see Isaiah pointing to a remnant, pointing the remnant to a far off reality based on what God has done already. He wants them to know why this is a reason for having hope and peace in their present. Now, before we move to verse two, there's a few other things that I want to unpack. Okay, so... Because the, these details are worth noting, and they'll they'll come, you'll you'll see just a little later on. So, what's the significance of Zebulun and Naphtali? Right, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and uh, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So these were the northernmost borders of the kingdom. Therefore, they would be the first to feel the oncoming impact of this invasion. However, they will also be the first to feel the oncoming impact of the Lord's Messiah, is what we're going to see as we continue to unpack. So he said, he brought into contempt. So these are going to be the lands that feel it first. They haven't even felt it yet, but he's already talking about in the past tense. But in the latter time, he has made glorious. So he's saying already, you're going to be the ones that feel it first, but you're also going to get to experience the gloriousness of what God is doing in the future. By the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Another detail here, which gives us indication that God is preparing to redefine the future of his people. And his kingdom is the reference there to the region of Galilee but not just Galilee. He doesn't just say Galilee. Galilee of the nations. Or, or your Bible might say Galilee of the Gentiles. It's kind of interchangeable reference there. But referring to this region's diverse, eclectic collection of nationalities and ethnicities. This region was known for having just an amalgam of different people from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different regions, ethnicities. So those who were the first to follow the Assyrians will be the first to see reprieve, the first to experience the salvation and grace of God through his coming Messiah. But not just the remnant, because now we see that he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So God is at work here, redefining the future of his people. And we see that as we continue reading. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So this gloom, this darkness, this shadow of death that is looming over the people, it's on the horizon, it's coming, is what the people are currently walking in. They're preparing themselves for it. So it's referred to here in the past tense, meaning that as the Lord secures this work, the gloomy shadow is no longer where his people dwell. Why? Because they've seen a light. They have seen God's grace revealed in pushing back the Assyrians, doing away with corrupt and pagan kings who rebel against God's word and do what is displeasing in his sight. Well, what dispels this gloom? What does... Uh, what What does away with darkness? What reveals that which is cast in shadow? Light. Light is what exposes all of this. It dispels gloom, does away with darkness, and reveals that which is cast in shadow. And what does Luke's gospel account say of the purpose of John the Baptist? We read this in Luke chapter one, verse 76. And you, child, if you joined us Wednesday, you know I read this from our, for our Advent devotional. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this light is bringing with it peace. As we're going to see a little later on Isaiah, but Luke so beautifully ties all of that together there for us, showing that what the angels pronounced was that John was making the way for God's coming Messiah, the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And what will you give? You will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And you will bring with you this, he's coming, this Messiah's coming to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And we read this in John's gospel account, though we don't have a, a birth narrative, he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And where is it, church, do you remember that Jesus begins his earthly ministry? Where is it that Jesus begins to preach this good news of the kingdom? Where does he begin to shine this light, to cast out the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace? you don't remember, you can turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Keep keep your finger there in Isaiah, because we're coming right back to it. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. We read of Jesus beginning his ministry. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for the remnant of Isaiah's day, what is God doing in this already accomplished but not yet seen reality? Well, as we've said, he's redefining his people by shining this light. He's he's telling them that a light is coming. The people who once walked in darkness... They're already getting ready to walk in darkness. The people who walk in darkness have already seen. So this is an already but not yet realized reality. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now we're beginning to see that in doing so, according to the interpretation of Jesus, and and that he is establishing his kingdom. Which brings me to my next point this morning, which is that confident hope produces present peace. Confident hope produces present peace. I know I said it just a while ago, but I wanted to reiterate that here. That for all those under the just judgment of sin, Jesus is the only hope of peace. Because as he shines this light, he brings with it the message of repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the peace of Christmas, that the light has come and all those in the gloom and the darkness of sin can have hope and peace in the decisive action of the Lord. In Christ, God has not only acted in a way which gives us a future hope, but he gives us a present peace. Our future peace Confident hope produces within us a present peace, knowing that He is in control. Peace with Him, peace with one another in His church, and peace within ourselves, knowing that God is sovereign. So, if you lack peace in any area of your life today, find confident hope in Christ and His kingdom, and you will find true peace. As Isaiah's message unfolds, this is exactly what he points the remnant to. And we find that this is exactly what Christ provides. Verse 3 of Isaiah 9 You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, we we see the fruit of this marvelous light has been shown. This is what, this is what is taking place here in verse 3. You have multiplied nation, increases joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So now we're getting to see the fruit being born because of this shining light. This light results in the nation being multiplied. That's the first thing we see. But now that, that should cause you to pause and say, well, now wait a second. With all this talk of a remnant... We've seen the nation of Israel, those who identified as the people of God, we've seen that shrink to this remnant. So the remnant represents a shrinking number. So how in the world, before it's even taken place, do we have verse 3 telling us that you've multiplied the nation? So now we're told the Lord uses this future light to grow the nation. So God's people are no longer a small but faithful remnant, but there are now a large multitude of nations that abounds with joy. This already realized but not yet experienced light multiplies the nation. But this is what God has been purposing to do from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Genesis 17:5, what is it that God declares as a promise to Abraham? No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. So God has been at work from the beginning to make his name known among the nations. And Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. Only through the blood of Christ can those who are outside be brought in. Those who are dwelling in darkness see a great light. Only through the blood of Christ those who are outside be brought in. At this point, I want us to see several things here In Isaiah's message, that the peace of Christ and the peace of Christmas provides. So, first, the peace of Christmas shatters division. It shatters division. Christmas provides lasting peace, which exceeds human boundaries and expands the kingdom of God to its intended domain all the nations. Now, there's a caveat there that we'll get to a little later. But this is what we saw when we read in Ephesians 2. If, y'all, if you'll recall, we read in our Ephesians series, we saw how in Ephesians 2, Paul clearly outlines how Christ has broken down the barrier for Gentiles to be grafted into the people of God. And this is exactly what we see happening here in Isaiah that God is saying, I'm redefining my people, I'm redefining my kingdom. In this Messiah that's coming, verse eleven of Ephesians two, it'll be on the screen. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So remember, we, when we broke that down, we're saying that those who were on the inside or felt like they were on the inside, they called you the outsiders. It is made by flesh and hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then what what does Paul say right after that? For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The peace of Christmas shatters the division between us and God. For this reason, the multiplied people of God abound with joy. So the next thing I want you to see there is that the peace of Christmas results in boundless joy. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The only proper response to such an action of God is to be overcome with rejoicing at what He has done. This is the emphasis of this action that God's will is the sole driving force behind what is being accomplished. Notice that. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. God is the one who is decisively acting here. And he is bringing in those who are in the darkness. And this is the only appropriate response to such an act of God. That in Christ we have confident hope, ceaseless peace, and this results in never-ending joy at the glory of God in Christ's The sun. So we continue reading. What else does the peace of Christmas provide? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, ha, this is good. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day as on the day of Midian. So you remember the battle with Gideon and, and all the surrounding, the act of God, and they he reduces the military and yet wins the battle, right? So that's what is, Isaiah is likening this here. Verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the reason for boundless joy reverberating from the people of God is given in the repetition of three, four statements. Three, four statements. We covered two of them right there in verses 4 and 5. Now we, So now we're really going to start to see this, this kingdom language come to light. We're going to start to see what this redefined kingdom of God looks like for the people of God. And we, here we see that the peace of Christmas turns suffering into reason for rejoicing. Don't miss this, that the peace of Christmas turns suffering into reason for rejoicing. And in your minds, you should be saying, that doesn't make sense. Suffering and rejoicing. Those two don't go together. You had me at joy and peace and hope, but you lost me at suffering, right? Well, church, that's the entire context of what God is doing here. That God's people are suffering, preparing to suffer, and they will suffer, but our hope is eternally set upon him who suffered on our behalf. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And how did Christ accomplish this? He suffered. Church, the peace of Christmas is that all our suffering has been turned on its head because our Emmanuel was born to suffer and die on our behalf. Our reason for hope is the foundation of our peace God acted, God acts, God will act again according to his purposes. And it's precisely to this birth that Isaiah points us. But notice all this language. He's showing that the elements, the tools of your oppression are broken. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. So all these elements of oppression, a yoke, this heavy burden, the staff that has been weighed down, the rod that has been brought down in punishment. You have broken as on the day of Midian, the boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and the, every garment rolled in blood. So these elements of boots of a warrior, the, the garments of a warrior that are covered in blood, whether it's his own or the blood of his enemies, there's all this chaos and, and suffering and gloom will be burned as fuel for the fire. The peace of Christmas turns suffering into reason for rejoicing. And it's precisely to the birth of Christ that Isaiah appoints us for this. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is the third and final four. So we saw the, the two four statements there in verse four and five. For the yoke of his burden, for every boot, for unto us. So this is the because, right? The foundational reason for all the others. This is the last one, the third and final. This is kind of that emphasis at the end of the four statements. This is the how. How will God destroy gloom, shine light, multiply the nation, turn objects of oppression into mementos of rejoicing, and put an end to all oppression by providing ultimate peace? How is he going to do that? How is he going to take these blood-stained garments and boots of a warrior and burn them? A child. What? That should cause an eyebrow at least to be raised. A child. Like all this elements of oppression, all this stuff of a warrior, all this talk of gloom, and God's going to put an end to all of it through a child. So he doesn't take all of those oppressive symbols and wield them. He doesn't create a worldly rule. He doesn't send a, a king or, or uh, at least not in a king in the eyes of the world as he often does, he acts in a way that confounds human wisdom. He comes not as some ultimate kingly warrior, but as a lowly baby born into poverty. It's worth noting the important role that the provision of new life plays in God's purposes. We had the birth of Christ, the birth of John the Baptist. We, in chapter 7, he used new life to show his people hope. Children are a heritage and a blessing and of ultimate value, and Christmas is a continual reminder of that. And Christmas, oftentimes, we look back on the year that was, and as I, as I look back on this year, I praise God for the overturning of Roe, but I'm going to say, Lord, help us for the continued fight, for there is much still ahead of us, but we can have peace because of Christmas. So here in the midst of the chaos of rebellious kings who dishonor God, lead his people into destruction, we're told of a coming king. But a coming child king. And so this is to emphasize the human nature of this child, it's clear emphasis here. Undoubtedly, the purpose of this is to emphasize that God is accomplishing through a frail child what grown kings could not accomplish. This also emphasizes that all of this is accomplished not by the child's adult obedience, but notice simply at his arrival. He comes and he conquers because his coming victory is as good as done. The beauty of what Isaiah espouses here is that he emphasizes not only the human nature of the child, but how the child is both human and divine. And so he gives this volley of titles to his name. God is accomplishing through humble means what man could not. He is the only one who is acting and he acts in a definitive and counterintuitive way. So let's look at these titles real quick because they're so worth uh, highlighting. Wonderful Counselor. So in the midst of confusion and chaos and suffering caused by foolish human kings, we're told of a child king who is both human and divine and he is a wonderful counselor. In other words, his wisdom is beyond comparison, especially when it compares to ours. Mighty God. So this child king is no pushover, but will have the very title and power of God himself. Everlasting father. So fathers, they, they protect, they're benevolent, they're strong. All the jobs of in role of an ideal king Yet Israel's kings proved themselves incapable time and again. Even the ones that did what was honorable in the sight of the Lord were only temporary. This coming divine child king will fill all of these roles forever. Prince of Peace. So it's so fitting. So on the, the third four statement we're given now, we're, we see the emphasis there. So now at the end of this volley of titles, We have this last title, Prince of Peace. And it's so fitting that this would be the final title to tie off this list. Because this vulnerable, divine child king brings what all earthly kings strive for, peace. He comes in peace, establishes peace, and he maintains peace for eternity. Continue there to verse 7, we see... How this peace lasts for eternity. Verse 7 of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, what type of rule and reign will this divine child king have? He'll have one of eternal peace. All the people have known in this season, in this time, is chaos and turmoil. And now they're told that the ultimate king, this coming divine child king, brings eternal peace. So don't look for peace in this world, church. In this world and its rulers, you will find eternal disappointment, eternal chaos, eternal sin. It is only in the reign of the God-man that we find eternal peace. Which brings me to that final point there. The hope of Christmas provides eternal peace. Why? Because Christmas changes our citizenship. Did you notice that? It shines the bright light which exposes the fact that we are by nature citizens of the kingdom of chaos and destruction. We're citizens of the kingdom of sin and self-indulgence. But this light that shines in our hearts transfers our citizenship. Christmas reveals that we are called to be citizens of His kingdom, kingdom of eternal peace. So don't get it twisted. Either you will finish your life as a citizen of the kingdom of chaos or the kingdom of peace. In Luke 2, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they echoed this role of eternal peacemaker. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. You know, one of our first points this morning was that it uh, was there that uh, the peace of Christmas shatters division. It shatters our division between us and God. But there is a division that is defined by the peace of this coming child king. For that and for our closing, I'll, I'll tell you turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. We see this said by Jesus. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, so that is everyone, full stop. This is like all, all come, all welcome, everybody, right? This is like, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. So the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace is on the earth. It's not of the earth. Peace is on the earth because he has brought peace within his church so outside of his kingdom, there is no peace. Do not think that I've come to bring peace. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus makes it clear that his coming does not mean peace, just all full stop, full open, but rather peace for all who follow him, for all who are part of his kingdom. He is the prince of peace. Therefore, peace can only be found under his rule. He comes with a sword, and that sword divides. So either you are a citizen of the kingdom of peace or a citizen of the kingdom of chaos and sin. His first advent reveals this divide. His second advent seals it for eternity. And so if we're going to look to his second advent with glad and hopeful expectation, let us make certain that we are citizens of the kingdom of peace. We can have total peace. It's possible. How? By looking to the advent of Christ, by looking to God's past actions on behalf of his name, we can live presently with total peace, knowing that his future actions are as good as accomplished. So whatever is destroying your ability to live A peaceful life, rid yourself of it, church. Throw it out. Because those who are in Christ can have sure and certain peace. Why? Because of Christmas. Because of his advent. And not just his past, but because we can look forward to the future, knowing that peace is certain. His first coming gives us all the peace we need now, knowing that his second coming, Advent is sure. Just as the remnant was encouraged to look back on God's past faithfulness to find reason for confident hope and peace, so we too look back on Christ's first Advent, and in so doing look to the future with confident hope and eternal peace, knowing that His second Advent is sure. Because He comes to abolish gloom and establish peace. Let's pray. Now we pray that this message would land accordingly on us as we see it in your word, that peace is certain, but it's only certain in you. So I pray that if there's anyone here without peace, because they're living outside of your rule and seeking to continuously be a part of their own kingdom, a kingdom of chaos, I pray that you would convict them, that you would call them to repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For those of us who are at peace with you, under your peace because of your work, help us to live accordingly. Help us to be at peace with one another within your church, at peace within ourselves, all of that flowing from the confident hope that we have in Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.